Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing and Product Strategy at Pragmatic Institute and your host for this episode. Today, I am very excited to have Aji Udezue, Chief Product Officer for Park Perisable, on with us. Hi, Aji. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic, Rebecca. How are you? Great. Great. I'm really excited about this conversation. Uh, we're going to dig into lots of different fun topics, but before we do, if you can set some context for our listeners, tell us a little bit about your background uh, and how you got into product. Uh, hi, everyone. It's good to talk to you. Um, I got into products, I guess, a traditional way. I went to engineering school. Um, I actually went to USC for my master's degree. And after I got out, I joined, I did a startup where I did some product management. And then I joined Microsoft and became a product manager on the Windows team. And eventually on some of the consumer um, apps teams at Microsoft. Uh, so that's really how I got started. Uh, most of my formative uh, learnings about being a product manager was at Microsoft. Uh, I've done a few things since then. I, at the end of my time at Microsoft, I uh, joined a marketing team and helped lead a marketing team. Um, I also have been a founder, uh, which I did after I left Microsoft. Um, and in the last few years, I've been part of some really amazing B2B uh, SaaS startups uh, or companies, uh, Atlassian, Calendly, um, and also increased my skills to lead design teams as well. So that's sort of my journey so far. It's a great journey, right? You've got lots of, of impressive companies that you've worked at, lots of different roles, which I think makes the, the best product people. I think it's really interesting too. You talked about B2B products uh, and some of which we all use all the time. Like Calendly, there's there's not a person I know now is not it doesn't use that or, or its competition. Um, and, and I think sometimes with B2B products too, people don't think of them quite as uh, maybe innovative or as sexy as some of the B2C products. But, but I think these days we see some really great innovations uh, that come from that space. So what I wanted to dig in with you a little bit is how do you create teams, right? That really enable innovative, creative solutions. How do we set up an environment that allows people to not only know, hey, these are the problems we should solve, but here are the solutions that are the right approach, the part that's going to like delight the user. And I know you've got a lot of experience with that. So if you can talk a little bit about your philosophies there, that would be great. Thanks for the question, Rebecca. So before I jump into uh, sort of uh, creating teams and, and sort of how to think about creative themes, at least how I think about creative teams, is just such on the B2B thing. You know, I, I was lucky to join Atlassian in 2016, and they are the original OG of uh, product-led growth. Um, you know, this, at least very early, little Australian company that sold its software over the internet and it was all on the web, and they didn't do a lot of traditional marketing. Uh, Atlassian's business model taught me a lot about building a software business more efficiently. I, I think about that as the stuff we call product-led growth. I also really believe that all software, all software businesses are ultimately going to, to sort of adopt all the techniques of B2C software, uh, because 
I think that's what it means to be customer centric and saying that yep. all of us are just consumers. So anyway, I just wanted to say that because that's a lot of what I try to teach and the stuff I've learned. Um, but how do you create a culture or a team that fosters innovative ideas? So I thought about this question and, um, and the first thing I think is clarity, right? Um, the, the thing that is hard sometimes is just, you know, clearness. Like how, what do you focus on or what don't you focus on? And um, I try to achieve the biggest goals of the company. Now, the stage of the company matters a lot in how well and deeply this can be stated. You know, if you are a very mature company, then your choices explode and the need for focus and clarity is even more. Early stage companies have notions, ideas for repeatable business, uh, but strategy is really about customer listening and validation feedback loops. But generally their choices are fewer. And so stating it can be easier to do. So I think that's the first thing. If you don't provide clarity, then people sort of run around with good ideas, which you're not sure will connect with customers or will produce the business results you want. I think the second thing is customer listening and signals. Um, and I don't mean like just listen to customers. I mean, like as a culture, you have to make it easy for everyone to, uh, or for R&D teams, not just product managers to come into contact with the kind of customers you want ask high quality questions and arrive at good synthesis, right? Um, you can do this through calls, uh, regular calls, uh, put feedback in the application so it just flows in, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but again, it's not about just like those things about making it easy for everyone to do. If everyone has to jump through five hoops to talk to a customer in your, in your business, it's gonna be very difficult uh, to create a culture that uses customer signals to create innovative ideas. Um, you also have to create a good system for hiring great people. Um, great people are a prerequisite for um, the culture that sort of hums with creativity. And you have to create a system for managing them well, incentivizing them and keeping them happy. And uh, finally, you know, one of the things I'm obsessed about is sometimes people load up a team with smart people and they don't use them uh, either because of hierarchy, you know, like only the, the most senior people will think of, you know, creative ideas and everyone else executing them. And so I call the focus on giving people a lot more access to important ideas so they can shape it, critique it, uh, remix it, is this idea of flat spaces or open spaces in a company. And so I try really hard to create those spaces so I can harness the intelligence of the entire organization where I can. Lots of good points there. If we can just hit a couple of those again. So I think the, the clarity and the focus, when we talk about in our annual survey, we always ask the question, like if you could ask your CEO one thing or tell your CEO one thing without getting in trouble, what would it be? And the number one answer is always focus. Uh, and I think your point that it is often more difficult to focus in larger organizations uh, because you have so many different opportunities is so powerful. So what are, what are some ways in terms of clarity and focus that you not only kind of keep, well, let's start with how do you keep yourself, uh, on track? Sometimes I think at the executive level, we are the, 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 the ones who, who tend to spread the fastest. So how do you keep yourself in check and really focused? 
Um, that's a good question. I have to think about that. So, well, I think, you know, every time I think about product management, I turn to some reliable and repeatable frameworks. Um, one framework I think is just a North Star framework. Like if you Google around, you see PMs and software executives obsessed about North Stars. So I think it's important to pick a North Star. And the reason it's important is that, uh, you know, a North, the North Star framework requires picking one thing, right? Like, and that's focus, right? That's focusing. And then it, the framework will tell you a little bit about making sure it's a leading indicator, right? That sort of leads the rest of the important metrics that you have. So you have to be kind of careful when you pick it. So I think that one way to, you just follow that North Star metric. Uh, it's incredibly clarifying for everyone in the organization. Um, the other thing is, you know, I'm gonna say something that seems obvious, but a clear vision and mission, right, is uh, important. Uh, if you have clear principles, like, you know, of how to be or how to innovate, and this is our principles for innovation, for example, you can articulate that, in uh, with some brevity uh that's what you do um also who are your customers you know you're not solving for everybody solving for everybody is basically solving for nobody uh how do you articulate who your customers are and who your customers are not uh, i'm very fond of this uh vmso framework that we use that that last and i try to use it everywhere now which is your vision, your mission, your strategies, which are sort of your levers of growth and your objectives, which are really clear goals and metrics. And to that, I usually add like, who's the customer, who's the buyer, and what are the priorities? Um, and I think that just forcing myself to create these artifacts, you know, the North Star, VMSO, helps keep me focused. Yeah, and I think uh, and that all of those items are also going to help your team stay focused, right? Because they also give them touch points and sort of North Stars to, to focus on. In fact, if you have a, a larger organization, it's useful to get different groups within your organization to author their own. Not, a, not author a North Star, for example, because that's for everybody. But what is your mission, uh, within the company that's tied to the company's mission? What, is, what are your own strategies and what are your own projects that will, you know, make those strategies true? Uh, and so if you, you know, if you ask people to the mid-level of the organization to really articulate those things, um, you get some consistency. You also mentioned the idea of sort of giving open spaces right within an or within your within your team and within your company open spaces for creative ideas can we talk a little bit more about what you mean there and uh how you do that yeah um i've written about this uh, on medium uh, about product culture and so i hope people who are uh, listening will check it out because it's much more in depth but you know one of the things that frustrated me as a as a, an icpm was the fact that I didn't always get a seat at the table when we were talking about the most important choices uh, on what to build. Um, and I'm speaking about my Microsoft era. Now, uh, that changed over time. I, I think I was specifically uh, given access to those things earlier than most uh, when I was at Microsoft because I think I had a gift 
for you know clear communication. I had a gift for thinking about where we want to be in the future. So I got a seat at the table earlier than most, uh, but it still took some time. Um, and I always think about that and think about, well, how who's in, who in my organization is feeling that way? And what do they know that I'm missing? Uh, you know, most of us, you know, in product management software, we are, there's a lot of brilliant people. And the question really for an organization is how do you harness that? Like, you know, if you do a thought experiment, assuming that no one knows the perfect thing and that it takes collaborative filtering and critique to get to the best ideas, how do you do that faster with the people in your organization? So that's sort of my, uh, where I arrive at open spaces and how I do this specifically. And I, I can't say that I'm perfect at it or maybe even good at it is I, what, I try to find uh, choke points where some of the most critical ideas we want to execute on are being discussed or we want to make decisions on them. And then I try to make those places inclusive, uh, as inclusive as possible, me meaning that it's not about necessarily hierarchy or title, but it's about believability and it's about uh, you know, broadening those spaces as much as possible. So. Uh, in most organizations I'm in, I have this ritual I call product trust, where we discuss the why of what we're doing uh, and trying to build. And those places I try to make inclusive, right? So there's various people of various hierarchies and titles in, that, in those meetings. And I think that, and encouraging them to sort of speak up, to examine the idea that every voice counts, um, that is one way that I try to implement flat spaces and open spaces uh, within an organization. So you talked there a lot too about sort of cross-functional collaboration and making sure there was a, a maybe a, a, a larger table, a big round table with lots of people there. How much of that do you think is influenced by the fact that you, as you mentioned in your history, you've, you've kind of come from an engineering background, you've worked with design, you've worked with marketing, or is that, uh, yeah, how much is influenced by that or how much is it just who you are? That's a really good question. I, I think it's more about who I am than about the multidisciplinary uh, uh, parts of parts of my career. Um, like I said, it's really like, what am I missing? Like, what ideas don't I have? There are lots of anecdotes about, you know, like at Netflix, they call it mining for dissent, right? Um, mm. You know, the, the Netflix CEO talks a lot about how he bungled the uh, the the splitting of their DVD business from their streaming business for it, it happened like for a month and they reversed it. And he, you know, some, his book talks about how he just said that's what they're going to do. And a lot of people didn't believe in it, but they were too afraid to tell him that, uh, that it was a dumb idea and they executed on it and they saw a lot of lost value as a result. So I'm always afraid of, of that, like, why, why can I, why should I do something dumb when someone in the organization knows it's dumb? They should be able to speak up. So I think it's really rooted in who I am and, and what I've learned and sort of the pattern recognition around the world. Uh, there are also examples, like when I was at Bridgewater, um, they used to have these management meetings um, 
with, uh, you know, the, the person who led the company, Ray Dalio, who is like a very accomplished, one of the richest men in the world. But I, th- these management meetings could be observed by someone like me. I could just walk in. Now, I didn't really have a voice, but I, at least I could see and it was transparent. And so I started to obsess about what does it mean to, to do that and to do that in a very uh, egalitarian way. And this is not a socialist social experiment or anything like that. The fact is there is a smart, believable smarts you need to harness. Now, the cross-disciplinary part comes from the fact that, um, you know, product management doesn't get to decide everything. Like, I don't even think, when I think about R&D teams, uh, I think about the shipyard. I have this metaphor of a shipyard, which is, you know, thousands of people working in concerts to make an economy or part of an economy work and trade work. And so it's design, it's engineering, it's product, it's product marketing, it's customer success, it's customer support. So I think orchestrating harmony and clarity between those groups turns out like really well-running organizations that who can build great products. So they have to be at the table and period, if you wanna do that well. You know, I, there's so many good lessons there, Aji. I think one of the things that people think product managers, are a lot of type A personalities, right? And I think a lot of them on the way up feel like they are going to succeed by just like holding all the control as close as possible, right? And because, and kind of proving that they know the way, but the the strength that comes from either the confidence in, in that you can be wrong and the confidence to ask if you are wrong and, and really listen is I think a powerful lesson in, in uh, finding the best solutions overall, but also building the type of teams and environments and relationships that allow you to get the most uh, success. Because as you said, product can't do anything alone, right? And we, we, we can think we're the smartest people in the room, but, but there is no product without, and there's nobody who knows about the product <laughs> without everyone else in that spot. Yeah, I think it's a misconception of the job. And frankly, I... I fell for it. Like at Microsoft, being a product manager was the most coveted job there was, right? Because you, you know, I could make a change to Windows and affect a billion people. Um, but my job isn't to bring forth my best ideas to the world, as as uh, interesting and as alluring as that is. The job is really to ensure that the best ideas, the best customer-focused ideas, ship. And so as long as we are looking at all innovation that happens in R&D as uh, with an eye of the best making it out to customers, then that's really the right conception of the job. Yeah. And you brought the, the, the customer piece back in, and that was the, the middle uh, sort of, of, of a stool leg you talked about. How do you, in the in the in sort of the open space environment where we're trying to make sure we're really hearing from everyone internally, how does product make sure that that also reflects the the market? How do we not only listen to the customers, but how do we bring it effectively to the organization uh, so that that's that's grounding in those discussions and the efforts? Yeah, um, there's something that. I've been thinking about and we'll probably write about soon. And I think that's the idea that there's been a couple of errors in the software business. Um, I think that the first error was the error of 
think about it as hobbyists, right? Super early, you know, Microsoft was formed, Oracle, we started to solve the basic problems of software, operating systems, databases, et cetera, and not making a ton of money. And I think that the second phase, which we went into really fast and probably been last 25 years is, or 25 years after that first phase is utility. We started to sell the software to companies, to CIOs, um, and they paid us a lot of money for it. And we created a lot of billionaires, right? Because they needed these tools as a whole new industry. But I think that we're in the era of convenience. You know, software has become um, just infrastructure. It just has to work. It's really uh, software for people, not people for software. You know, in the era before this one, feature lists were all that mattered because it was an arms race. You had to buy the most features because everything will become obsolete and you always are focused on that. In this era, it's about how does this fit the lifestyle of the B2B customer, of the consumer? How does it make the quality of their life uh, better? I think about Uber. Uber just sort of closed down and simplified the workflow of hailing a cab, which we've been doing for a century. And so that's what I mean by the era of convenience. Now, if you view the world in this way, then a lot of good ideas come from customers, right? A lot of good ideas come from inhabiting the space and the pain of customers. And I think that's the right culture to build, um, tied to some of my previous comments. You know, people come out of school of various parts of their career trying to change the world with their ideas. Uh, and we glorify inventors a lot. And trust me, I'm super creative. I think about amazing things <laughs> to do all the time. Uh, but it takes a mind shift to understand that innovation is best done in concert with the customer, understanding their unspoken needs, seeing into the better future of their less painful workflows. Um, and if you sort of think about it that way, that you always, your invention always has someone else at the table. And you kind of think about that and you make that part of how you think about your approach to problems, then... Uh, you're going to see a much more innovative culture, uh, that, you know, inside a company. Also, celebrate your customers' wins, their testimonials, their joy, their success. Uh, celebrate that internally. When when your team sees you celebrating customer wins, it helps them be more customer centric, and it helps and and sort of creates better ideas that are customer centric for them. Uh, you also sort of have to work on the basics, you know, encouragement, growth mastery, autonomy, uh, obsess how to give your employees that and their spark of creativity will stay alive. I love the idea of celebrating customer wins. Uh, I, it just really brings home to the fact that you're aligned towards the same goals. Uh, and I've also found as, uh, as we've gone virtual and as I've talked to customers and partners and they're all virtual, that the celebrations are one of the things that maybe haven't translated into this environment as well. Uh, and so figuring out how we carry those forward, particularly customer ones, right? That's why we're doing this. Their success is our success. And making that really clear, I think is, is very powerful. I totally agree. <laughs> All right, Adi, this has been amazing. Um, and we've talked a lot of different things about innovation and culture and the, the type of culture that creates it. Uh, is there if you could have our listeners do two things differently today based on, or two things differently tomorrow based on what we talked about today, 
what would that be? Where would you have them focus? Two things. Oh gosh, that's like a, a whole universe of possible responses. <laughs> um, look, I would say build something. You know, try to build something. Um, builders change the world, so try to leave a mark by building. A lot of people have said this, but probably the most famous people that I know are Steve Jobs and Mark Andreessen, which most people here, you know, listening will understand. Um, as a PM, really try to understand the customer first. Um, it's not that you shouldn't have great ideas, you should, but when customer understanding is part of your ideation, you, you, you'll become more successful, trust me. Um, it'll help with everything else you do and it'll give you conviction. Uh, keep learning, get better at learning, uh, teach if you can. Mm. Uh, the more you teach, the deeper you know things. Uh, it's almost like everything you know can be known deeper. And um, the question for, for us all the time is how deep should we go? Uh, are you all on the surface all the time, mid-level or really, really deep? So I think if you teach, you go deeper, faster, uh, because people ask hard questions and you have to sort of mm -hmm. get to know them. Um, so those are the three things I'd say. Oh, great answer. Great answer. All right, Ajit, this has been a genuine pleasure. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I appreciate your time too. And thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Uh, that does it for today's episode. Thank you everyone for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. 